Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki. Welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. Uh, In addition, we provide resources for veterans and their families who are struggling with post-traumatic stress to get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, it's a special honor to be featuring Dr. David Tharp, a combat veteran and a former first responder who founded the nonprofit organization Project Healing Heroes in 2016. Dr. Tharp is a United States Air Force veteran who has dedicated his life to healing our heroes who are battling post-traumatic stress. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey, Dr. Tharp, how are you? Good day. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. We certainly appreciate it. Um, Man, we've got a lot to cover today, uh, but I really think I I need to do some justice in telling our our listeners uh, all the things, all the accomplishments that you've made, um, I guess, in life. Uh, Because when I I did my research on you, I have to tell you, I kept saying, oh my gosh, there's more, there's more, there's more. I have to tell about this. Um, brilliant. That's all. I that's going to make me sound. That's that's going to make me sound important, and I'm not. I'm really not. So let's. <laughs> we, we'll just have some fun today. So. <laughs> well, you're absolutely important in my eyes, and uh, I know in the veterans' eyes that you serve. So thank you so much uh, again for your service to our country, and also for the work yes, that sir. you're doing uh, for our U.S. military veterans. It's it's amazing. So. Um, I'm going to just real quick, if you don't mind, I'm going to read off some of the things that I, some of the, the details that I found about you uh, in doing my research and uh, preparing for our podcast today. Um, but, and it's absolutely amazing. And I, I, I'm telling you, I'm going to read off four or five different things here, but the list goes on and on and on. So uh, it's, it's a pretty wealthy and extensive and amazing list. So uh, Dr. Tharp founded Project Healing Heroes in 2016 uh, as a clinical psychologist to help treat post-traumatic stress in our returning service members and their families. Uh, he served as the PTS program manager at the VA Medical Center in Waco, Texas, which is the third largest PTSD program in the country for the Department of Veteran Affairs. Uh, He's also a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves at the United States Air Force Academy and experienced firsthand the cost of war on our military men and women and their families, serving as a NATO medical advisor in Kandahar, Afghanistan. As the medical advisor to the commander of Kandahar Airfield, David was responsible for 28 countries' medical assets and for notifying the country of service uh, of those killed in action, as well as any civilians. His other responsibilities included medical response to casualties from rocket attacks, which occurred daily, and serving as the advisor to the U.S. Army mental health team. Wow. And that was just five. I could have gone, I could have gotten 15 more that I could have pulled out, but um, absolutely amazing. What an honor to have you on our show. What an honor for me to be able to call you a friend. So again, thank you for taking the time to do this podcast. 
Well, Jay, I'm just thankful that you're doing this because I know for a fact you're making a difference in veterans' lives, and that's the focus of what we do, what we're doing, right? I mean, that's the point. And so anything that I can do to support that and uh, in your ministry and what you're doing, I want to do it 100%. So I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity. Well, thank you. Um, again, it's it's amazing the work that you're doing, uh, Project Healing Heroes. It's Everything is, is amazing. I mean, like I said, I can't wait to talk about not only your time in service, but your family, who is absolutely beautiful, and what you're doing, you know, after. So it's it's really cool. But why don't, if you don't mind, this podcast is about literally documenting the lives of our veterans, and it's so important that our, our listeners understand. Um, I like to go back to childhood because childhood is where we probably experience our first trauma, right? And uh, a lot of the things that I've learned in, in interviewing veterans and doing. Uh, my TV show for the last seven years is that a lot of the trauma stems from childhood, uh, broken families, you name it, there's all sorts of trauma there. So if you don't mind, why don't you just give us an idea of what childhood was like, you know, where'd you grow up and, you know, Sure. I, I almost have to laugh because you're asking a clinical psychologist to tell him <laughs> about his childhood. And, I, and I'm about ready to turn it around and say, so, Jay, tell me about your mother. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, I grew up in a very small town. Uh, it's called Oakwood, Illinois, uh, three hours south of Chicago, probably 2,500 in the whole town. Um, my dad was uh, a very uh, he was uh, in, in heavy into Boy Scouts, um, wood badge, and uh, we were very much into sports. I mean, so it was kind of your typical childhood that, you know, you grew up in a very safe environment for us. Um, we literally w- walked to school uh, about four blocks away. The only thing that actually happened that I can remember that was kind of difficult was we almost all died. I mean, that, that sounds kind of crazy to think that, but it, we the, the heating element or the heater, um, the pilot light blew out and we all were succumbed with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Wow. And my dad happened to be playing cards and he stayed out till two o'clock in the morning that night because um, he, uh, he and he would get up early to go to work at 4 a.m. at the newspaper. And so he only you know, got a few hours of the carbon monoxide. And then um, lo and behold, uh, our school called my dad and said, um, none of the kids are in school. Are they doing OK? And he's like, what? And and so he drove back home and found us all asleep. And if it wasn't for that, no, if it wasn't for that situation, I wouldn't be here today. And so uh, I think God had a plan. Um, As a matter of fact, I've almost died three times and I'm very grateful for each and every one. But my my sister and my uh, mom were the the most sick because um, they were in a smaller room uh, where my brother and I uh, slept with a uh, cracked with a window that was kind of cracked open and uh, and stuff. So we didn't. take on as many fumes, but um, I thank God Almighty that we made it through that. Um, But other than that experience, um, we really were blessed and very thankful and uh, just got to enjoy um, kind of the good old American family type environment, uh, you know, growing up and um, just kind of thought everybody else grew up like, like that as well. L- mm-hmm. Little did I know that that wasn't true. Uh, and I found out since that uh, some people go through some incredibly difficult and traumatic experiences. Uh, and, um, and so um, part of um, my decision to, um, to become a clinical psychologist uh, was directly related to my mom who um, was dying of cancer when I was in college. Um, I ended up taking 24 hours and they, uh, I, I don't know, the dean called me into his office and said, what do you think you're doing? I'm like, what, what do you mean? And he goes, why are you trying to take 24 hours? And I said, because my mom's dying at home and I want to go home. 
I want to finish my degree and I want to get to her as soon as I can. And he goes, do you think you can handle that? And I said, I don't know. Look at my GPA and you tell me. Wow. And he goes, permission granted. And so he, uh, he signed off on it and I finished up as quickly as I could. Uh, and I was doing computer engineering um, and at the time. And then after I saw um, ho- um, what my mom went through in hospice, and what my dad had to to witness and experience, um, and as well as my sister, my brothers, and stuff, um, it changed the course of my life. And uh, so it was kind of at that point in time I decided that um, I wanted to do something. Uh, it was actually in ministry at that point, and I started working with adolescent boys, uh, adolescent kids, actually at our small school uh, church in Muncie, Illinois. Uh, and then things just progressed. Uh, went to seminary, and then. Uh, when I was in seminary, decided that, man, I really want more training and uh, and went on and, and after uh, graduated from seminary went and got a doctorate in clinical psychology. Wow. So that's kind of the educational pursuit on that on that side of it. There, I have a couple other master's degrees that I got later, uh, but that was kind of uh, <clears throat> my progression uh, going through school and uh, kind of the impacts uh, that um, were kind of nodal points that really – kind of turned the tide on, on kind of what I wanted to do and, uh, and how to help folks. Hmm. So was military ever on your radar or not until you decided you no. wanted something? You know, did it- <laughs> not in, not in the least. As a matter of fact, it's so funny. Um, my dad served in the, in the Navy in world war two. My older brother, Joe was in Vietnam. They never talked about it. Really? Like, like when I was thinking about, uh, um, my family of origin and the military service because they never talked about it. I never even thought about it. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't until nine 11 that happened. That was the trigger for me. I'd already had, uh, I'd already graduated with my doctorate and, um, I was a pilot. I enjoyed flying <clears throat> And all I could think of, because I used to fly the Cessna 172s, if mm-hmm. you know what those are, yeah, little bitty, little bitty planes. Uh, and uh, so I would fly around and, and things of that nature. And I remember uh, hearing about what was happening and watching. And I'm like, uh, I, I didn't see it at first. All I heard was that somebody had flown a plane into the World Trade Center. And all I could think of as a, as a pilot like, was, how in the world could you miss that building? Like, in the sense of, it's right there. Like, how did you do that? And then the second one hit. And at the time, I worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I was like, this is no accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually trained, if you're familiar with what's called FLETC, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. And I was an honor grad there. They they have two people out of 100 uh, that they get the very top award. And I was one of those two. Um, And that was uh, a pivotal point for me because – I had made a decision at that point in time, um, I, I, and it probably isn't good for me to say this, but I was so angry. I wanted, I wanted somebody to pay for what they did. I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to stop what had happened from happening again. And I, I actually wrote an article titled "The Home and, uh, Versus the Away Game," and I had made my decision at that point in time. If we're going to fight terrorism, I want to fight it on their soil, not ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I <clears throat> joined the Air Force um, at that point, took um, some time for me to get in. Uh, but then um, that was kind of the impetus for me uh, in my military service and, and in my military career. 
So how long was it after 9-11 that you actually joined the military? Well, it took about, surprisingly, which kind of was interesting, it took a couple of years uh, for them to get everything situated. I, I don't know exactly why it took that long, but I have since learned in the military, there are some things that take a little while. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, lo and behold, um, I started uh, uh, working uh, for the Air Force Reserves and Air Force Reserve Command, did a lot of different things, a lot of post-suicide reviews around the country, um, got to fly around and do a lot of different things. But always on my mind was, how can I serve this country and how can I make sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that I can raise my family in a, in an environment where they don't have to worry about <clears throat> terrorism and, and what its impacts are. And so I made a decision at that point in time, not only for my family, but for our community and for our country to do whatever I could do with whatever gifts that God had given me to try to make a difference. And so that's kind of how that all started happening. Interesting. So at this point, were were you married or did you, had you met your wife yet or no? Yeah. Yes. I was already married. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, I decided that um, at at some point in time that I wanted to uh, deploy and I wasn't sure where I was going to deploy, but I made the decision to do that. And I went and told my wife and she's like, what? And she's like, David, we have two small kids and I am going to medical school. And I'm like, I know. But I really feel like this is important and we need to do this. And she's like, she was, of course, incredibly supportive. But you can imagine from her perspective, you know, what are you saying? (laughs) You're going to leave me with these two children and I'm trying to, uh, at the time, I think she was trying to get into medical school. She hadn't gotten in yet. Um, It it was at Texas A&M College of Medicine and we were living in Waco, Texas. So it was like an hour and a half drive just for her to get there. Uh, But um, but God was gracious and we were able to make it all work. And, uh, but it literally, there, it changed our lives dramatically. Um, I'll be honest with you, Jay, and I'm, I'll be completely vulnerable. And I have been with most people. I, you, you know, when, when you have a doctorate in psychology, when you're an ordained minister, when you've done what's called clinical pastoral education, I've done all the training and the trauma level one centers, everything you could pop, worked in hospice for eight years, worked in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I mean, I, I literally came to the table thinking, I've seen it all. I've got this. I've got, yeah, I've seen everything that you can possibly imagine in this world. And if anybody's going to go, I want to do it because I think I'm going to be the most capable and resilient because I had always been number one. I'd always excelled to the, at the highest level. And I'm like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. We'll get into this a little bit, but I had the choice between Kabul and Kandahar. And I made the decision to go to Kandahar because that's where all the fighting was. Mm-hmm. The green zone and where all the Petraeus and all those other people were in Kabul. So I thought, you know what? The chances of them getting hit are, are a lot smaller than if than if I go to Kandahar. And if I'm going to deploy, I'm going to do everything I can to reach out to the most people that I possibly can and serve them. Uh, and I don't want to waste my time. I want to give and give 100%. And so it was just kind of a continuation of my life and how I do things. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is at the, the you know, uh, to the very best of my ability that God's given me. And it, it just, it was very important for me to try to, to try to make that happen. Um, I, I don't know where you want to take this, but I will share with you real quickly. In the process of that, um, there were nine 
Yeah, I don't know if you are you familiar with what's called a JDOC? No, uh, Joint not. Defense Operations Center. Okay, so it's a, it's called a Joint Defense Operations Center. Basically, if you imagine the holy of the, the holiest of holies, okay, like uh, you go into the green zone and you go into a very secure building, and inside the secure building is a very secure room, and you you know there's it, it's like where all of the commanders go and the the most important influential people meet in this area, so that they can make high-level decisions about how we're going to prosecute the war and do what we need to take care of. Very important, very secure. Everything happens in the, you know, in the census of the JDOC about where decisions are, are typically made. In Kabul, while I was in Kandahar, one of the Afghan pilots took his weapon out and killed every one of the United States Air Force personnel. There were nine of them. And I remember a good friend of mine, who was the lawyer at the time, had me look at some information that I can't go into Mm -hmm. that we we can't talk about. But he said, David, I need you to see this. And I was dumbfounded by what I had read and uh, and that 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 this had happened. And it was at that point in time, beyond everything else that had already happened, that I realized there is no place that's safe in war. Mm -hmm nobody is safe if you if they can get into that area and literally execute all nine of our air force officers then all bets are off and at that point in time i took my weapon off safe and uh and when somebody noticed he goes hey you know your weapon's off safe and i said yeah i know and he goes did you want to do something about it and i said no <laughs> and 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 they said why i said because i'm going to make sure everybody here goes home wow I don't care. I don't care. I want to make sure that everybody goes home. And so I probably did end up putting it back on safe mm-hmm. at some point in time. But there was a part of me that that was just so appalled that this had happened um, that I wanted to do whatever I could to make sure that we got all our folks home. Wow. Oh, amazing story. I didn't I, I wasn't aware of it. And uh, I mean, is it when you look back on it, I know obviously your faith in Christianity and stuff. Uh, when you look back on it, is that one of the places that you could have been had had you deployed there instead of Kandahar? Exactly. So, because I chose Kandahar over Kabul, and because I worked in the JDOC, I would have been there. Really. So there are a list of nine individuals that I honor every book that I write, everything that I do. I have a list of them, and and one of them um, is a major, and from uh, you you can see all the different ranks and all the different places that people were from, and you know you you try to tell yourself things like I was an honor grad at Fletzy, I, I was the best of the best, and and what if I had been there? Could I have done anything? Could I have stopped this from happening? And so part of it is you end up having you you realize how how precious life is. But even more so, you have survivor guilt too, you know, because you're like, gee, many Christmas, you know. But then the other part of you that hits you at the heart is that, what if I had died? My kids would have grown up without a dad, yeah. you know. And and when when that hits you right between the eyes, you know, you just it just drops you to your knees, and you realize, you know, that that this is war. And 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 in my books, I write that there are two rules of war. The first one is um, people die in war. And the second rule is you can't change rule number one. Right. And so 
that's that's uh, that's kind of uh, the impact that it had on me because I realized the magnitude that at any point in time, uh, from rocket attacks or anything else, uh, that could be my last day. And so um, you start changing the way you look at the world uh, at that moment. Wow, incredible. Um, well, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, that that from based on that conversation that I a lot of questions I have. But, um, <laughs> you know, that being said, I mean, how often were you able to talk to back home? I mean, how often were you able to talk to your kids, talk to your wife? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, here's the blessing. I'll be honest with you, which is wonderful, is that the USO, I thank God for them. Um, they do such an amazing work. And what they had done is that they had set up communication center for phones and things like that, and you could sign up for it. And so it wasn't difficult in that sense to be able to communicate. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it actually makes it more difficult because there was a situation where we had a rocket attack come in and I, I was on the phone with my wife and I said, I got to go. And I hung up. Oh, no. Well, I didn't. I didn't get to call her back because of what we were doing to prosecute the war for three days. And she was freaking out, I'm sure, you know, and she, you know, like what, what you know, I don't know what happened, you know? And and so in some ways um, compared to world war two, world war one, Vietnam, where communication took a lot longer. And then by the way, when we talk about reintegration, that plays a role into Mm this. When you have instant access to information, it also can be bad too, because when you have instant information and um, people get on social media and they can say this is what happened or so and so died, it, 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 they you know rules have to be followed. Mm-hmm. You have to make rules because what you don't want is for a family member to find out on the news that their loved one had died right. before we get to, before we get to even have the the opportunity to tell them. Right. And so there are so many things that you people don't think about sometimes uh, that all of a sudden you have to really consider. And um, and even social media and what you post or what you say, um, you have to be incredibly careful. Um, And so you you you're always cognizant as a military member, at least I am, about what I'm saying, being very careful not to divulge something that I shouldn't, Mm -hmm. uh, but still convey to people you know, I, I wrote a book t- entitled um, "What Happens in War Doesn't Stay in War," because I, I felt like people really kind of needed to know mm-hmm. um, what actually does go on in war. And so I wrote like when I was there, I just started writing down things, and and I have like sixty different stories, and they're all like two pages long. They're real short about all the craziness that happens. And in the first, uh, at, in the beginning, I was almost going to entitle it "You Can't Make This Shit Up," but then mm-hmm. I thought they're never going to publish that. You can't, you can't publish that. <laughs> and so. But others are like, you should have published that. Yeah. And, and I kind of laugh about it. But it, you really, you can't. There is so much stuff that goes on. Jay, I, I'll just say one real quick one. And then I'll, and then if you don't mind, uh, I, I literally, the general who I reported to directly, uh, Brigadier General uh, Kendall, uh, we had the Russians landed their Antonov, the world's largest plane on our runway. Hmm. And he's like, we, we can't have this. We got to get them out of there. And I'm like, yes, sir. And so he goes, I need you to get down there and I need you to assess the situation and help out and get these people out of here. And I'm like, yes, sir, general. I don't speak Russian. 
<laughs> I'm sitting here going, what in the world? So, you know, so I get down there and I'm just like, okay, so I see the plane, uh, you know, and, and, and so I'm talking to um, special forces and everything else. And we're trying to figure out how do we talk to these guys? We finally figure out French is, is the language that we speak and they speak and that we could then communicate. Um, but the craziness is, is that they were completely wasted and really? they landed on our runway. And so, and I'm like, well, how do you know they're wasted? And they're like, look at the back of the plane. And, and, and there's just piles of alcohol. No. And, and then they, and then they wouldn't even give us the pilot. And so, so I'm, you got to be so careful in theater of war. And so I have a responsibility. The general told me what I needed to do. I'm going to do it. Right. That's what you do. If you get an order, you take care of business. So I go to step on the plane to go find the police, the, the pilot. And my friend, who's the lawyer, said, hey, David, uh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He goes, um, I'm going to have you arrested. And I'm like, Jason, what are you talking about? And he goes, if you step on that plane, I'm going to have to have you arrested. And I'm like, why would you do that? He said, because that's another sovereign country's assets. You don't have the authority to do that. Really? And I said, I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no. And I said, well, I thought you were my friend. He goes, I am. I told you before you did it. Otherwise, I could have waited until <laughs> afterwards. And then that's you. <laughs> I was like, man, wow. I, I, I go, are you being serious? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm not kidding. And I mean, it's just there's so many rules and so many things that can happen. And and it just it gets to be crazy. Uh, and so the, lo and behold, long story short, we ended up having a New York police officer who was able to give them a sobriety test that we found the pilot. He gave him the sobriety test, and he came back to me and said, good news, bad news, which is what you hear in theater all the time. It's yeah. like, oh, gosh, what's the good news and the bad news? He goes, uh, bad news is he's completely wasted. I'm like, great. I said, what's the good news? He goes, he can fly. I'm like, what? How can he fly? He goes, tolerance. He goes, man, these people have incredible tolerance. He goes, he passed my test. <laughs> he's completely wasted, but he can fly. Really? And uh, Yeah, I'm not kidding. And then we get a phone call from I don't know where, and it, it's like, I was a major at the time, he's like, Major Thart, we need to have this plane get out of our airspace now. And I'm like, I don't even know who it was. I'm like, yes, sir. And and then he said, he told the pilot, get, you know, you can fly. And and they flew off. Wow. And, Amazing. And when I say, when I say you can't make this stuff up, you literally can't. can't. I mean, yeah, there's no. so much that... <laughs> I mean, it is it is insane. It completely changes everything you possibly could even think or imagine uh, when you go to war. Wow. And and I thought I was prepared and ready for it. I couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you realize quickly once you get over there, you couldn't have prepared. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> you try. But man, they throw you some curves you never could even imagine. So let's talk about, um, I, I know you and I have obviously had some conversations prior to this, this podcast, but, um, I know that there were some of the invisible wounds that you brought back from war, but also you did suffer some injuries during your time of duty. Um, can you tell us about mm. that on your deployment? Uh, sure. So not only, so what I will say is everybody gets affected by war. I, I can't think of a single person who I deployed with or who I haven't who I haven't known that wasn't affected in some way, shape, or form by what they experienced, witness or or whatever. And you can see physical wounds of war. So it was my job to identify anybody that got killed in theater, um, whether that be service member, 
other country or third party national. So I would have to find out who they were, what their information was, and then notify one of those three agencies or whatever so that they could then um, follow their procedures and protocols for what they needed to do. When you see uh, on a trauma level one center the devastating effects of what IEDs cause, um, it is unbelievable. What our doctors and nurses and techs go through and what they do in service to our country is incredible. As a matter of fact, I remember talking to the commander of the role, uh, role three um, and, and the role one and role two. Uh, which are all three different levels uh, of care, echelons of care, and in, in the trauma level one center, uh, one of the one of the things that they do is they send people home after four months, doctors and nurses and techs. And I'm like, what? What? Why would you do that? And because um, of who it was that was working, it was the commander who, who I know knew very well, he said, David, um, the problem is is that if you stay in this environment too long, you begin to think that war is normal. Hmm. And I'm like what? And he goes, you begin to think that war is normal and it's not. You begin to get sensitized to things. And he said, our job is not to come here and believe that that war is normal. Our job is to come here, do our job, and then get home to our families. That's what we are here to do. But the risk is, is that people who deploy over and over and over again can start to believe and start to to experience this so intensely and so emotionally laden that it becomes normal. Wow. Is it part and that's of, a, uh, yeah. Is that part yeah. of the, you know, a lot of the veterans that I've interviewed in the past um, has talked about how um, when I'm, you know, home, I'm thinking about there. And when I'm there, I'm yeah. thinking about home. Is that all part of the, the, the psyche? Well, it is. And, and he, I can't speak for other people. I'll just speak for myself, you know, because everybody, you know, has a different perspective, I'm sure, and story. But what happens is, is that you are so invested and trained for years, most of the time, about what your job is. And then there's this psychological aspect of closure that we need. And when you're prosecuting a war and you come out, it's not over. Mm-hmm. We leave, we leave our buddies behind. Mm-hmm. Well, like there, there are friends of mine that were still there. And so what happens is, is that without closure, without there being an end, you know that people are still at risk and you know that you can do something about it. So when you come home, like a lot of people would come home for on two, you know, their two weeks, uh, so, you know, I, I call it, uh, whatever the, their time away. I almost called it sabbatical, but that's leave. Like, that's another issue. Yeah. yeah leave. And, um, and, and so we didn't get that because of our the time that we were there. We stayed there the whole time. But for those that did, you know, because some people did 18-month tours, even longer, and, um, and, and I can't even fathom what it would be like to come home and then go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, w- but when we do come home, it's very hard to – you can't come all the way home. There, it's really hard to come all the way home because there's a part of you that's still left over there. Yeah, and it's, it's there's so much that you wish so you true. Could do. Um, yeah. I interviewed a veteran yesterday that said that exact same thing. He was in a firefight, a, a, a very heavy firefight, and um, and he had mm-hmm. leave, and he basically went home, and within 48 hours, I think he said he was actually at his niece's birthday party, and he had a whole bunch of family members and stuff, the people that hadn't seen him, friends and family, and they're all hugging him, and they're and and they were like, "What's wrong with him?" Like, you, you know what I mean? And he's like, "Listen, I was yeah. so out of that moment, and they couldn't understand." Right. 
but they, they'll never understand what I was doing just 24 to 48 hours before that. You know what I mean? And he goes, I was oh, fighting for my life. Totally. And, I mean, those are yeah. the realities of a lot of the things that, and, and the reason that I do what I do as far as the podcast is just to try and educate America and basically explain to them that, sure. man, freedom isn't free. And, and even though there aren't the physical wounds necessarily, it's the, it's the the mental wounds and the PTS that that come home with with many of these men and women, and and hence the reason why you and I both do what we do. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I want to talk you know more about obviously uh, Project Healing Heroes because you're doing your part to try and give back and make tomorrow better than today for our veterans. Um, and I want to you know get into detail with that because I know there's hopefully a lot of veterans and their family members that are listening. Um, you know, that sure. could utilize that, that uh, process that you're doing and then talk about your books and things. But um, I do want to talk also about your family when we come back. Uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. take a, a quick break. And uh, I want to talk about, you know, I know your wife is now currently in the military. I know you've got some sons and boys. Um, I want to talk about just what that was like, what reintegration was like into civilian life for you. And um uh, and, and talk about those types of things. So if you don't mind, I'm going to play a little uh, nonprofit of the week segment here, which is uh, for our veterans and their families. It's a, another nonprofit that helps our U.S. military veterans. This one happens to be mm-hmm. Project Healing Heroes, so they're going to learn a little bit uh, you know, in advance of what you're doing. But uh, that being said, we'll, we'll take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back. This week's Veterans Resource, Nonprofit of the Week, is Project Healing Heroes. We empower combat veterans, service members, first responders, and their families to resolve trauma through awareness, resilience, and support. We are combat veterans who have expertise in treating post-traumatic stress, often referred to as PTSD. We utilize our military and crisis training to find solutions to resiliency challenges in individuals with all types of field-related trauma. Giving back, honoring losses, and providing for the greater good is integrated into every step of our ongoing care plan. Visit www.projecthealingheroes.org for more information. Well, there's a little sneak peek as to exactly what Project Healing Heroes is and what you've been spending, I guess, the last, uh, at least since 2016 of your life uh, doing. But, um, you know, that being said, we before the break, we talked about, uh, you know, injuries sustained in war. And um, did you, after your deployment, did you come home and, and feel like uh, you were different? A hundred percent. I have to, you know, I'll be honest with you. It's, um, you, you. I don't know anybody that came home that isn't, to be honest, if they're being honest. Um, in my in my case, things uh, I, I actually suffered some physical challenges. There was a period um, when rockets would come in, they would shoot Chinese 107 rockets at us. And because every day I saw the ramifications of what would happen or the consequences, I mean, people would lose arms, legs, you know, they would be killed. I mean, I remember one guy at the DFAC and I mean, he literally got hit by one of these rockets in the head and you know you're just like you know anybody who knows anybody anything about a head injury those are the ones that bleed the most um unless you know tourniquet is required for other things and you know it's just uh, i remember um i was in a particular area and one of those 107 rockets came in and it was way too close and it exploded right near me and um, behind me. And I mean, I hit the ground and uh, and I felt this pain right in my back. And I'm like, oh, man. And I was like, dang, that hurt. And um, and I couldn't figure out what had exactly happened because I can't see it. 
And so I, um, I was going to the roll three and, um, and so I go there and I said, Hey, can you guys take a look and see if, you know, if, if I got hit, you know, what happened? So they took a look and they're like, no, nothing, nothing showing. I said, okay, good. Um, it wasn't too much longer after that, that all of a sudden I started losing, um, feeling in my legs and I, I couldn't figure out why I'm like, what the heck? And it kept moving up and up and up. And I'm just like, this is insane. What is going on with my body? And I was having trouble walking. And, um, and so I finally go to, uh, the role three and I, uh, I, you know, because I commanded all of the medical assets, I talked to with the neurologist and I said, Hey, can I ask you a question about a troop? Which is what you often do when people, you know, when you want to ask a question, but you don't want to ask it for yourself. And he's like, yeah, sure. What's going on? And I said, what is going on with somebody who actually starts to have this where they can't feel their feet and it starts moving up and up and up and up and up. And he goes, how far up? And I said, as far as I know, it's about right, you know, here, you know, on them uh, to probably mid-level, like right across their chest. Hmm. And, um, and he goes, David, that person has had a spinal cord issue. Like something, they, they suffered a spinal cord injury. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He said, I, I would have to assess them. But from what, I, what you're telling me right now, they suffered a spinal cord issue. And I'm like, oh, man. And he goes, why? And I said, um, I can't feel my legs. He goes, I know. I was just wondering when you're going to tell me. <laughs> so, he, <laughs> so he knew. I mean, it, it, because it was blatantly obvious. And I was trying to you know, hide it and stuff like that. I was like, what the heck? I didn't want to leave. I had a job to do. And I did not want to leave the theater of operations before I finished my military service. And th- when you have something like that happen, I was the one who was getting the MRI into theater as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we hadn't got it there. Not, there were too many complications, too many issues. And we had to know all kinds of stuff. Like for example, one of the questions came up, well, what happens if a Chinese 107 rocket hits the MRI machine? <laughs> well, I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, and, and they're like, well, can you find out? And I'm like, uh, sure, sure. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to find out who created the MRI machine and I'm going to ask them. So when you were testing this, did you ever shoot a Chinese 107 <laughs> rocket at it? And if so, what happens? Because we're near the flight line. Is it going to affect any of the electronics on the airplanes? Unbelievable. <laughs> this is the absurdity of what happens. And, but, but you have to know that because if one of these things does hit it, you got to be prepared, right? You sure. can't just, you have to have, you have to have COAs, courses of action about how you're going to mitigate these kinds of issues. And so we have to try to figure out how to mitigate it. And so those are the kinds of things, those questions that I, I would get uh, and trying to figure out how to solve this kind of stuff. But it, the funnier part was I get this phone call when I'm in Kandahar and, and, and I, and there's a gentleman on the other line and he says, is this major Thorpe? And I said, yes. And he says, this is general so-and-so in, um, in, um, Bel- in Belgium. And I said, Yes, sir. And I stood up, even though I'm on the phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's a general, right? He's not, he's not a a one star. He's not a two star. He's not a three. He's a four star general. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know. And and I and I said, sir, what can I do for you? And he goes, I understand that the United States wants to put an MRA in the theater. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, don't you think it would be a good idea for them to ask? Uh, yes, sir. 
I, I think that sounds reasonable. And he goes, okay, then what I need you to do is I need you to get a hold of your president, and I need you to have him call us and ask permission, and we will grant it. We've already discussed it, um, but we need to have that happen. So um, how soon can you make that happen? Uh, sir, do I understand you want me to call the president of the United States <laughs> and have him call you? And ask permission to put an MRI in the theater. And he said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I said, may I humbly ask one question? He goes, yeah. I go, don't you think you would start at somebody a lot higher than me? And he goes, yeah. He goes, but I thought I would just start with you anyway. Really? And I'm like, I'm like, yes, sir. Yeah, hang on. <laughs> and, I got him on speed dial, right? <laughs> right. What do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm going to go back to the Russians. I'm talking to them because I, I, I have a better chance of doing that. than I mean, it's the craziness wow. that you just experience, you know. And and so, uh, you know, and and this is just the things that go on behind the scenes. This is not even the guys that are, you know, in constant battle. Their lives are on the line. And and I mean, I even had a situation where. We literally got into the JDOC, and we our guys were getting killed because of the route they were taking. All right, mm-hmm. and I see these two very young um, army guys, and and they're just shaking their head while we're having this discussion. I said, "Do do you guys have something that you would like to bring to the table?" And they're like, "No, sir." And I'm like, "I think you do." And they're like, "No, sir, no, sir." And we're sorry. And I said, "No, if you have something that you." can contribute uh, by all means. I would really like to hear it. And he, and the one goes, why don't you just fly over? Them? And I'm like, what? And he goes, you keep talking about the fact that, that our, um, our, our, our um, convoys keep getting hit. Why don't you just fly over? Them? <laughs> so I turned and I looked at our pilots and I talked to our guys, the commanders. And I said, gentlemen, What's the answer to his question? And he and they're like, um, it's possible. I said, okay, can we save lives? They're like, yeah. I'm like, all right, what's the problem? We haven't tried that yet. Amazing. Okay. And, and I'm like, let's go through and let's literally figure this out. How far is the distance? What are the limitations? What are the problems? What are the issues? And literally, it was uh, a private who came up with the idea, sitting in our meeting, that was just looking at us like, "How you know? How, how could you guys not think this through?" Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that 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 I at least noticed uh, and asked the question because you never know where great ideas are going to come from. Absolutely. And and our best asset are the men and women on the ground that know what they're doing. And I and I that's why I am so passionate about serving them and doing any and everything I can, because they are the men and women who have served this country at a at, at a level that sorry <clears throat> hard to even talk about sometimes at a level that most people have no idea. Sure. Yeah. No, well, thank you for sharing that story because I mean, those are the stories that never get told, right? That's the stuff that people don't think about when they think of the big picture of whether it's war or combat or whatever. And uh, and so, I mean, the fact that you're you're willing and able to share those stories, I mean, that to me is is what this is all about. And uh, I mean, it's it's amazing because after you go to a, you know go go into the, the the med unit and you find out that you've got some type of what neurological disorder on your spine? Uh, is that yeah, something. 
Yeah, we didn't know what we didn't know what we were dealing with, honestly. It, it, but what the good thing was is that um, the gold standard was high doses of steroids. No matter what it was, that that's what they do um, when you're having some kind of swelling in your spinal cord. Okay. And so um, they, so I was able, thank God Almighty, to actually be in a location where we had some of the best medical care possible. And I was able to uh, take the steroids uh, and and finish the job that I was sent there to do, which was a, a, a blessing, big time. Um, and uh, because you, you want to be able to make a difference, right? That's why people serve. They want to make a difference. And I wanted to do that. And I didn't want to leave the game early. I wanted to do what I came to do. And so I was blessed to be able to, to finish up, finish strong. Uh, and then 18 of our guys got hit by an IED. And that made it a direct flight from Kandahar to Lonstool, Germany. And General Kendall said, I need you on that flight. And I said, yes, sir. Hmm. So, uh, Jay, let me just tell you, um, I get shivers down my spine even as, I, as I think about this, but that was the coldest flight I've ever been on in my life. And across from me, not even 24 inches, are three uh, stacks of, of um of people that are on um, gurneys, right? And they're hooked up to machines. A lot of them are intubated. A lot of them, because of their injuries, are so severe that they had to put them into a, a, a medically induced coma. And the injuries were, were so bad that they literally could not do any surgeries they needed to get them to Lonsdale as quickly as possible. And it's like, I can't remember, I think it's an eight-hour flight. I, I could be wrong. I just remember that it was an unbelievable experience and, and just seeing these guys and their service and what they had done. And at some point in time, when, when you're at war, it can get a little overwhelming. It, it really can. It, it, you see death and dying all the time, and that's what I did, uh, notifying you know the country or service or third-party nationals. And it just, it was, it, it got to be, you can't process a theater. There's just not time. Mm -hmm. There's, it's not safe. It's, there's just not time. You can't do it. And so I finally decided I got to get, I got to take a break. I can't just sit here. And so I decided to take a little walk on the plane, you know, while we're flying. And then I see this box. It's big. It's four by, you know, four foot by six foot or whatever. It's a pretty big box. And I'm like, what in the world is that? And then I, I walked around and, and, and there it's, it just stared at me. It was literally Killed in that KIA, one U.S. soldier, effects, deliver to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Hmm. And I was just like, oh. Yeah. And, you know, that, that just, besides all the, the people that I had seen, you know, there, I, I, I try to not ever over-exaggerate because sometimes people do and, I, and that does not fit well with me and and i i would speculate i probably saw at least 100 people that died because of what i did but man when i saw that the the personal effects of the kia and it wasn't just one box there were more multiple boxes and um and on top of that a very good friend of mine died in theater um i used to volunteer at the uso and um, to try to do what I could, you know, even in my off times, whatever that was, um, to be able to help and make a difference. And um, and he got hit by an IED. Wow. And uh, it just it rocked my world. And, and Jay, I, I want to share with you. I'm going to put some, something together real quick, if I may. 
you asked me the question, you know, you know, about the invisible wounds of war versus the visible wounds of war. And so um, let me just talk about the visible ones at first. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my spinal cord issue was so bad when I finally got to, to lawn school, spent two weeks there, flew all the way to the Air Force Academy, down to CMC. By the time I finally got home, I could barely walk. And I could not feed myself. I actually had to have those little round things that you put on a fork uh, to to help you to eat because I couldn't hit my mouth. This it, it, it was it was very difficult. We actually had my sweet mother-in-law move in uh, with us for four months uh, because I couldn't take care of the boys. There was nothing I could do. As a matter of fact, when I came home, all I wanted to do was to throw the football uh, to my son Joshua. So it was five and I, uh, I took the football and I picked it up in my hand and I tried to throw it and it fell to my foot. I couldn't throw it. I had no ability to, to use my, my, um, muscles or my strengths or the neurological uh, issues that I was suffering from. And it, it literally, I, I tried as hard as I could to throw in the ball and it fell just at my feet mm. And he ran to me and uh, picked it up, and he handed it to me. And he said, Daddy, it's okay. Um, You'll be able to throw it to me uh, in enough time. We'll play then. And I was just like, wow. You know, it was was so emotionally late. You know, it's just like, golly, this is just killing me. You know, and and so those – those are more of the invisible, the, the, more of the visible because you could see it. Mm-hmm. The invisible wounds of war are the ones that are, I think, the most devastating because people just don't know. Like they don't even know what we deal with. Uh, we we just had it was just what um, New Year's, and um, and I'm in Las Vegas because we came here to spend time with my wife, who's the medical director for mental health here. She's a physician, and of course, Las Vegas has a lot of fireworks, and I know that. But even as I was trying to go to sleep, it just kept reminding me of being back in Afghanistan. And what people don't really realize is we never say most of what happens. We keep it to ourselves. I, 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 you know, psychologically, it's not good, right, for us to do that, to keep it to ourselves. But here was my philosophy on that. Why do I want to adulterate my life with my wife and tell her all the things that I went through because now not only do I have them in my head, now she does. So why would I want to do that? On the opposite, here's what happens. When you don't tell people who love and care about you what you've been through, they naturally think the worst. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh my God, what happened over there? Like what was so egregious? What was so bad that you can't even talk to me about this. And then their mind, you know, you can imagine when people don't know answers, they just start thinking things. Sure. And, and then it could be 10 times worse than what it, could, what it may have even been. But we don't want to talk about it sometimes because we don't want people, we don't want to, I, I didn't, at least I'll speak for myself, I didn't want to adulterate my relationship with my wife. I went to fight the away game so that I didn't have to bring it back home. I didn't want my wife and my kids to have to deal with this stuff. So why in the world would I then want to talk about it? Which is why we started what's called makethenection.org 
at Project Healy Heroes for people to be able to come and just be able to re, you know, be a part of the tribe <laughs> that we used to have. And, and be able to just, you know, if this is not counseling at all, as a matter of fact, one of uh, one of my good friends, Scott Medor, who's on there all the time with me, said, if people ever listen in on what we talk about, they think there's something seriously wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really the honest to God's truth. It's just a bunch of combat veterans and, and some first responders that get together and we just talk about all kinds of stuff. And it's not always serious. Sometimes it's just for fun. Sure. You know, we just kind of laugh. But we've got people from Sydney, Australia that log on sometimes. I mean, it's it's crazy all the different places uh, that we have people that log on. Um, but it's a safe place. It's mm-hmm. a sacred place. It's a place that people need to be able – they need a place to go to when they have those things that they're struggling with where they can talk to others who understand. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I will say this real quickly, and I want to be very cautious how I say it. I um, – as a, as a clinical psychologist who's now been to war, I completely see the world very differently. Like I, have, I had no idea what people went through that went to war. I went to war so that I could understand it and get a better understanding so I could help treat my patients better. That's part of why I went to war. Um, I never imagined the magnitude of what I would learn. And, and, and – there's nothing like experience um, to teach you those kinds of things. And, and I remember coming back um, from Afghanistan. And, and, of course, you get assessed by people, right, when you come out. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I was being assessed by, I'll just say a provider. I won't say anything else. And they were asking me questions about what it was like. And so the first question, for example, was, um, did you ever feel like your life was in danger? And I just look at him like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. I'm like, I just came out of a war zone in Afghanistan. And and the woman was like, okay, that's fine. And she goes, did you ever see anybody get killed? Do you have any idea what I did? I'm like, I was the med ad. It was my job to identify anybody who died for uh, for over six months at the uh, people that got killed. Of course I did. Oh, okay. That's fine. Um, did you did you ever see anybody get killed? Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you ever did you ever have any of your friends that died? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, the next question. Uh, you know. Um, do you ever have any difficulty sleeping? Are you freaking crazy right now? I'm like, I, I started getting really. I'm like, are you joking right now? Right. I'm like, is there a camera on me? Is this is this like a setup? Yeah. And she's like. Catch this, Jay. I can sense that you have some anger issues. <laughs> are you? Are you freaking? You're contributing crazy? to them. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I'm just like David. Calm down, because the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to give her more ammunition to use right. against you. Right. And I'm like, I don't think you understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Oh, so now you're the expert. You're going to tell me how to do my job. Unbelievable. <laughs> Where do you start? Where do you begin with that? Let me like, ask what you do one you do question. Have, have you ever been deployed and have you ever gone through what I've gone through? Unbelievable. That's exactly right. That's what you want to do because you're just like, you are not getting this. That didn't stop there. Then it got worse. By the way, if you tell me that you're having any of these symptoms, you can't go home. Oh, We're going to hold you back because we want to make sure that you're okay. Wow. My next question was, what's your question again? Because mm-hmm. I'm perfectly fine. Yep. 
I'm nobody in their right mind is going to tell you the truth at that point in time. Although we 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 you know profess integrity and everything else, and I'm at the academy, of course. You know, you, we will not lie to you or still or tolerate those who do. I mean, the same thing with Texas A&M and all of it. Sure. But man, when somebody flat out tells you that you're not going to go see your family, yeah. that's an issue. Yeah. That's a real problem. Then it got worse, Jay, and and I'll stop on this one, and then and jump into whatever question you have. And I'm so sorry, but oh, I went great. to the VA. I I went to the VA, and I know the guy who's a clinical psychologist, and so he's like, uh, he's like, you know, David, are you having problems? I'm like, yeah. I said, I really need help, and I don't know what to do, but the problem is, I know the research. Two thirds of the people who use the two treatments that we're using in the VA don't get better, because hmm. I know this. And I said, so what do you want to do? And he goes, well, he goes, I'm going to be honest with you. After talking with you, there, I can't help you. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't help me? And he goes, David, there's three reasons why I can't help you. And I said, can't wait to hear him. He goes, okay, the first one is you're in the military and I'm not. I don't even understand half of what you're saying. And I'm like, that's not my issue. That's yours. Yeah. I'm like, you need to you need to learn. And he goes, oh, so you're going to tell me how to do my job. I'm like, oh, my God, is this a theme or what? And I'm starting to lose my I know. And I'm starting to lose my cool at this point in time. And then he, he goes, well, the next thing is, is the second reason. I said, yeah, I can't wait to hear this. He goes, the second reason is because you disagree with our treatment. I said, dude, be serious with me right now. I'm not kidding. You know darn well what the research shows. It, for those who it does help, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I'm very thankful. But when two-thirds of the people don't get better, according to Steenkamp in the JAMA article, Journal of American Medical Association, in 2015 and 2020, and proved it, no. I said, would you buy a car that only works one-third of the time? And he goes, that takes me to number three. I said, can't wait to hear it. Yeah. He goes, you disagree with everything I say. And I said, that's because you don't know what you're doing. I said, my God, if you have been through all the stuff I've been through, you would do your job very differently. He goes, well, that's never going to happen. So that's why I can't help you. Wow. Amazing. And that's the VA's help for our veterans that are returning, huh? That was the help that, you- at, at my, at, that, I, got, that I got when I came back. And you have to understand uh, – I, I was sort of high up, and not high up in the VA, but I graduated from their top leadership program, LVA 2016, and I was dumbfounded by how many people really didn't know what we go through. So I do a two-hour talk that takes people through 200 vid- pictures of what it's like to go to war. And I just tell them story one after another about what people go through. And I did it in LVA 2016 when I was there. I think there were probably 200 people in the room and I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. Wow. By the time it was done, it just, there, it was such a heaviness. And when I was finished, I got a standing ovation for five minutes and people were like, I had no idea. Wow. And I, and I and all I and all I could sit there and, and wonder was how do we how have we failed even helping our VA folks because I don't bash the VA mm-hmm. they're doing they have been entrusted to take over for the DoD and do the very best job that they can and I applaud them for what they're doing but at the same time if this is the best we have we've got to do something better mm-hmm. we we have to. And so that's when, in 2016, we started Project Healing Heroes. 
Perfect. Well, that's a that's a great segment, and I do want to get into Project Healing Heroes in, in much more detail. But I do want to sure. Uh, maybe this is a good time to mention that um, this podcast, and I want to make sure that any veterans or veteran family members that are listening, um, the podcast is not about um, exploiting or glorifying the 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 horrors of war by any means, but it's about telling real life situations, real life stories. Uh, Cause I don't want to bring any veterans that might be listening or even veterans families back to this deep, dark place because you know, they, they've swept it under the rug or they may have done whatever they needed to do. And now listening to something like this brings them back to that. That's not what this is about. What this is absolutely about is about talking about the realities of war, the things that the men and women have faced, the struggles that they face. And then once they do get home, uh, being able to to decipher what they're feeling, how they're feeling, why they're feeling that way, um, and then try and get them the help that they deserve. And so, uh, again, I just wanted to kind of make sure that I mentioned that because it's it's extremely important that that listeners understand that um, again, freedom isn't free. Um, men and women paid the ultimate price, and uh, and and unfortunately, the ones that are coming back again without the physical wounds that you can see, um, many, many, many of them have the the mental wounds, and we want to make sure that we're trying to help those individuals. And so I want to talk real quickly uh, about reintegration. We touched upon it a little bit, but it's one of the things that I know that many of our veterans struggle with. And that is, um, you know, you've been out, you know, in combat, you've been deployed, you've been in the military and you come home and you're expected to, you know, unfortunately, and I, I hate to say this, but as Americans, we're, we're so busy with the day, the day rug rat that we we're you know we go to get up we go to work we take yeah. the kids to school we go to hockey practices or whatever it might be that we kind of forget and we're we're numb to uh the things that and now we are, we're expecting you to reintegrate into a society that is going a million miles an hour uh with something something completely different than what you've just been deployed for the last six eight ten twelve fifteen months and we expect mm-hmm. you to function in that society flawlessly Right. I mean, that's it's really what it comes down to. So would you mind just talking real quickly about reintegration into civilian life, what it was like for you, um, what it meant to your your wife and your children? Um, I mean, how did they cope with it? And and we understand yeah. now, I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that PTS can now be passed down to your spouse and your kids because of the struggles that you're enduring. So yeah. can you talk about that? Yeah, second, secondary trauma. Uh, from from all the things that you know, people talk about uh, walking on eggshells because they are so worried that they're going to say something or do something wrong that's going to upset the veteran. And and we are very so. Here's what happened. In my opinion, here's what happens, um, Jay. Um, when when you go to war, everything becomes about life and death, right? Because people are dying, and and, and we're trying to prosecute a war and take out people that have done bad things to us. And they're doing bad things to to others around the world and, and in their own countries, and we want to we want to make it stop. We want the world to be a safe place. But in the process of everything being about life and death, you come home, and then somebody starts talking about something that makes it doesn't matter. Like I remember being on the flight home. It was actually after I got off on uh, in Lonstol. You, you take a civilian flight back home, and there was a a gentleman who is overweight, sitting in first class, and he gets mad and irate because his coffee isn't warm enough. You have to understand, I just came out of a war zone. And I'm like, do you not even know we are at war? And if you would just for a second picture this, a ordained minister 
who's a licensed psychologist sitting there thinking, I'm going to throat punch this guy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take him out. And, and it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, my God. How? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. like, this, is, this is not good. This is not normal. You're right. Because this, but if I'm trained to that level and I have these thoughts, I bet you there are a whole lot of other people who have some, some of the same thoughts. Because when, every, when things are about life and death, you don't care about social media stupidity. Yeah. You don't care about all, all the crazy, stupid things that people do. You're just like, man, there are people dying. And you could care less. Like you not even know we're at war. Nope. And so that's that's our threshold. So when we go to work and we hear people make, you know, make issues out of things that when we compare them to life and death, they're really not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so one of the things is is that what I would love to tell your readers, if nothing else is Man, we are so normal, it's not even funny. If, if you took any person, and, and here's a great example. The women at the USO, they're not in the military. They're civilians. Mm -hmm. And yet they had some of the same reactions and responses that we have after living in that environment. Hmm. That's what normal people do. So we're not crazy. There's not something wrong with us. It's the fact that we've had these experiences that are so extreme that when you compare everything to life and death, all of this other stuff is meaningless. It doesn't matter. And, and so part of what also happens, Jay, is if you think about PTS, right, we're taught in the military to mitigate risk at all times, at all, at, 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 no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. So if there's something that's going to bad is going to happen. Our job is to stop it at all costs. Make it stop, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in order to do that, do you know when it's going to happen? No. So you have to be on guard, right? Uh, you ask any military person, when can you not be prepared and ready to go? And they'll say, never. You always have to be ready to go. Well, what happens to a normal person is that they become what? Vigilant, right? Because you, you, you have to be vigilant to know when it's going to happen. Well, guess what? One of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD is hypervigilance. Well, when can you not be vigilant in the military? Never. Yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you start asking people questions. Uh, do you ever find yourself putting your back to a door or measuring other people up when you go into a, a room? Do you size people up? Do you look for escape routes? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Because you never know what's going to happen. Oh, okay. So you have hypervigilance. That's a sign for PTSD. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, that's not a bad thing. We were right. taught this. So one of the things that I try to teach people, and, and it really is true, there are things that we're taught in the military that are important and imperative for when you go to war. The problem is, is that we bring those things home with us. Mm -hmm. it, it's not like the Boy Scouts where you need to be prepared. It's one of those things that we learn some things that are good for us in war, but it's not good for us when we come home from war. I'll give you a really kind of a fun, kind of quick example. In the military, you on time is late. 
That's what that's what we are taught. On time is late because when it says 0900 that the general is going to be speaking or whatever, you do not get to your seat at 0905. Mm-hmm. You don't even get there at 0900. Mm-hmm. You don't even get there at 08455. You're going to get there early mm-hmm. and you're going to be in your seat and you're going to be ready to go because you are going to stand up and you are going to salute and on time is late. Now you come home and your wife says, we're going to go to a party and it's at seven o'clock. Well, guess what time you say we're going to be there? Probably 0645 mm-hmm. or maybe even 0630 because on time is late. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to be fashionably late. And you're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean we're going to be fashionably late? You mean we're not going to be there at seven? And she's like, no. And, and everything you've been taught is on time is late. Right. And so it's even the simplest of things that you're like, well, what time are we going to go leave to go get things done? Well, I'm not going to be late because everything I've been taught is not to be late. Right. Well, She's smart because she knows that not all parties go well, and sometimes last-minute things have to happen, and so you are fashionably late to give the host more time. That can even cause conflict in relationships. I mean, there's a hundred examples of things that happen, and so one of the things that I learned is that when God says there is a time and a season for war and a time and a season for peace, it's not at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be preparing for war and imagine that you are getting ready to go to a war zone at the same time that you are preparing for peace. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't work that way. So part of the challenge is we have been taught all of these things in the military that have been important and vital for going to war, but we're never untrained when we come out of it so that we can re-engage in a normal kind of healthy lifestyle. And so very similar to uh, Pavlov's dog in, in, if you know, do you remember Pavlov in like, like psychology 101? No. Uh, how he would ring it. Okay. Let me tell you real quick for your readers too. So what happened is in operant conditioning, uh, Pavlov, Ivan Pavlov, he was a Russian uh, physiologist, I believe. And he trained his dog by the sound of a bell to salivate. Because he would immediately give the dog food. What happened is ring the bell, dog would salivate, give him food. Ring the bell, salivate, food. And he did this over and over and over again, right? He even did it where he could ring the bell and the dog would salivate without even seeing the food. That's what's called operant conditioning. Uh Well, guess what happens? In theater, we have these Chinese rockets that come in, right? And so they come in every day. What we did was we had this sound that would go off. It was a 1950s, I think, British sound that would go off on the alarms and telling us a rocket's coming in. When you heard the sound, you hit the ground. Mm -hmm. Sound, ground, sound, ground, sound, ground. Operant conditioning, exactly the same as, as Pavlov's dog. So what you do is you get used to hitting the ground. I came out of theater I was in Montgomery, Alabama with my wife and kids and family because she was getting ready to go to boot camp. You're not going to believe what happened. Somebody on their phone had that had that ring, that sound. Guess what I did? Hit the ground. I did. I went flying across the floor, and I'm on the ground, and I'm laying there with my head covered up because that's what you do because there's rocks and everything, shrapnel that can come up, and it hit me. I'm not normal. Something's wrong. Like, what have I done? What is happening here? So I flip over and my wife is like, what are you doing? 
I happened to try to make light of it because I said, you know, I'm checking out the peanuts. I want to make sure they're okay. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I said, yeah. And so I brush myself off and I sit down and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know why I did that. I couldn't process it fast enough. All it was was operant conditioning over uh-huh. again. Sound ground, sound ground. So what we were taught to do in theater is you hit the ground. And so that's what I did. But I had to retrain my body and my brain to go, you're not at war anymore. You are in a safe place. You're in, you know, Texas Roadhouse in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh You don't need to be taking a dive on the ground, David. But until you unpair that just like a Bluetooth, right, mm-hmm. phone to head uh, your ear, your earpieces, it's going to keep doing it until mm-hmm. you unpair it. But that's part of the issue is when we come out of theater, we are not untrained. Most of the time, we don't get a lot of the untraining of what we got to go to war to prepare us to stay alive. So part of the challenge is, is that you have to unpair a lot of the things that we've learned to do in theater so that we can live a more normal, healthy life. Now, eventually, I was able to tell myself during certain times when rockets, not when rockets, when fireworks go off, see, I did it again, Mm -hmm. when rockets come in, or when that sound comes in that I don't have to hit the ground. I'm safe. I'm in America. I'm in Waco, Texas now. I'm with my family. It's okay. And I can then talk myself off the ledge because my adrenaline system is kicked in by that time, right? Everything is fired up. Cortisol, everything mm-hmm. is fire, adrenaline, epinephrine, all of it. And now your body is like flowing with all these chemicals to prepare yourself to make sure because Walter Cannon in 1929 coined it fight or flight. Mm-hmm. They also added freeze later, fight, flight or freeze. I added a couple other ones, faint because some people in certain cultures under certain stress will just faint. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen so many times. Others will flee. Mm-hmm. Um, others have faith. So there's a lot of things that they never covered that I put in our book that I want people, you know, that, that are that are just different reactions and responses that people can do. But Walter Cannon was the one who coined it, and it's you know, fight, flight, or freeze, and that's what people typically do. Uh, the problem is you don't normally know what people are going to do until you get into that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, you can mimic war, you can prepare for war, but honest to God, you don't know how a person's going to do until the until shots are fired. Yep. And so part of part of all that training that we get is to prepare us for war and to get us home. The unfortunate part is I'm a firm believer that what we don't do is do a good job of unpairing a lot of that training and bringing people all the way home. Instead, what somebody would do in Texas Roadhouse is like, oh, that guy must have been at war. Mm hmm. I wonder how I wonder how messed up he is. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine growing up in his family? Can you imagine being his wife, mm-hmm. or what his kids have to deal with? You know, and 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 I would just say, from the bottom of my heart to everyone, we are not. There's nothing wrong with us. It's operant conditioning. We were just trained to do what we did. Mm-hmm. But now we, but now we need to do the untraining so that we can come all the way home. It's interesting, and and yeah, I mean, we, I'm sure this is a whole another podcast. We could talk probably just about that, and we are going to talk about Project Healing Heroes and how that helps with the 
the, I'm assuming with the, the unconditioning and the training, right? Um, but that before I move on to that real quick, I do want to talk yeah. about um, about your kids because um, I think it's important that that people understand. Like I said, you came back and you admittedly, self admittedly, say I was a different person. Um, yeah. You were you were a different husband. You were a different father, um, and and yeah. so. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, about how how they had to cope with yeah. things? <clears throat> yes, sir. Um, so I, I think it um, it doesn't put me in a good light, but I don't care because I, I want people to know the truth. Um, one of my good friends, like I told you, Scott Medor, who's wonderful, um, when, when I knew that the VA wasn't going to be able to help me, my wife and I went on a vacation and took a break. We had to get away. Mm-hmm. If I could just say, everybody thinks their wife is the most beautiful and the smartest and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, mine really is. <laughs> she, 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 she's not only beautiful, she graduated number one uh, in the top 1% of all physicians in the country as psychiatrists. Wow. Uh, she's brilliant. I mean, unbelievably off the charts. And so I, I, I'll just quickly tell the story and then I'll, I'll bring it together. Um, when we were taking our vacation, she said, David, you know, I know you're having a really, really hard time and, and things. Do you know what you want to do, you know, to try to help make this better? And I said, Catherine, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm struggling because the VA is the one that's supposed to help me. And that was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I don't know what to do. And she said, do you mind if I share with you what I think? You have to understand. I, I'm sitting here on a beach. Nobody else is around. I've got the top 1% psychiatrist in the country. Mm-hmm. And she's about to tell me what I can do to get better. Yeah, I'm all ears. Profound knowledge coming Dude, your I, way. I, I'm like, I, I just hit the jackpot. And I said, I would love to hear it. And she said, okay, I'm not sure how you're going to take it, but I really want, I think this is the answer. And I said, okay, what is it? And she goes, "Um, the answer lies within you. I'm like, what? (laughs) And she goes, I I think deep down inside, you you really do know the answer. I said, you're the top 1% in the country and that's the best you can come up with. (laughs) And and so we had a kind of an interesting dialogue. And I said, I thought you were going to tell me how to fix this. She goes, David, how many people, and Scott said the same thing, how many people are clinical psychologists who are ordained ministers, who've been to war, seen all the stuff that you've seen, experienced it firsthand? Let me ask you a question. If you were going to treat somebody, what would you tell them? And I said, well, I could tell you right now what I wouldn't tell them to do. And she goes, like what? And I said, I, you know, and I, and I said, I would not do this. I wouldn't do this. And I wouldn't do this. She goes, okay. What would you tell them to do? And I said, I'd have to make a list. And she goes, why don't you do that? And I said, because that looks too much like I'm doing work and then I'm actually going to get help. <laughs> and, we got out. and she goes, I need you to write it down, but I want you to do it like you're helping somebody else. Just how would you do it? And I really prayed about it and I thought about it. And that's how our resources came about. I sat down and I started thinking about it and I was like, the first thing I would do is tell people they're not crazy. There's not something wrong with them. We were trained this way. And, and when you use the analogy of pairing and operant conditioning, it starts to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that this is the normal process of what it took for the military to make sure they kept you alive. They did their job. Now we got to bring you home. And now we've got to do some things to help you come all the way home. And so 
I started writing. And uh, before I knew it, I had like 16 different sections. And Catherine said, why don't you put it in a book? Like, because nobody wants to read this. And she's like, um, I disagree. And so I put it in a book and people found it helpful. And I never stopped writing. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. So that's one of the one of the things I did learn is that there's just one of me. And there's so many people that need help. I, I made the willful decision that I can't run enough groups. There's just not enough. There's just no way to do it. There's there's so many people right now that are hurting and need help. And, and I figured the best way I could help them is to um, put it in writing, in books and things that they could use that uh, they could read on their own mm-hmm. and go at their pace. Um, and so that's what why we created the first six books uh, for Project Healing Heroes. Well, interesting. So just real quick, going back to your children, tell me a little bit about how. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so I'm so sorry I didn't bring that up. You you were so good. I I did what's called tangential thinking, not (laughs) circumstantial. I forgot to bring it back. Uh, So what happened was when when Scott challenged me uh, with the fact that I have all this training and education, he said, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, David, God gave you all of these experiences and training and abilities for a reason. What are you afraid of? And you tell a military guy that they're afraid of something. That's kind of like, you know, you're you're really challenging me because you're really ticking me off. You know, I'm like, I'm not afraid of anything, Scott. And Scott was an, an EOD guy, you know, so he blew stuff up. Okay. <laughs> and so he's like, look, I, I really believe that God wants you to do something with this. And and I think you're scared to do it. And I'm like, I'm not scared of anything, Scott. And so I was really mad, you know, and here I go with my my irritability and anger again. So what do I do? I'm at the Air Force Academy. I've already done my my day job. It's at night. I'm sitting at my hotel. And here's what happens. I, I, ha- I have a come to Jesus meeting and I'm like, Lord, you know, what do you want me to do? And, and I, I never hear an audible voice. I never hear any of that kind of stuff. I just had this sense that God was saying, then if you just took the fruits of the spirit. And use those to help people. And I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean? And he said, just take patience, for example. If you had a 100% cup full of patience, how would your life change? And I said, that's pretty funny because I, I could just imagine what my family would say. He goes, actually, I want you to do it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I want you to call you back and talk to your family. And I'm like, okay. So I pick up the phone, and the first one who answers is Joshua, my eldest. And I said, Joshua, I got a question for you. He goes, yeah. I said, um, am I a patient man? He goes, are you kidding? You're the worst. <laughs> and I'm like, are you being serious? He goes, oh, Dad, you're terrible. He goes, man, you are like impatient as ever, and you get angry so fast. And I'm like, hurt. You know, and I'm like, dang, I didn't expect that. And I said, can you put Peyton on the phone? Because he's, he's uh, two years younger. And I said, Peyton, I got a question for you. And he goes, yeah, Dad, what is it? And I said, am I patient? And he goes, no, you're terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. And so I'm getting hammered. And, and I, But it's, 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 it's the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have to hear the truth. And I said, can you put Mom on the phone? <laughs> this was dumb. And so I just said, Catherine, I, I said, I seriously have a question for you. I said, uh, am I patient? And she goes, David, don't ask me questions you don't want to know. <laughs> and I said, are you serious? And she goes, I, I've been wanting to talk to you about your anger for so many years. I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't want to hurt you. Mm. Brother, that drove me to my knees. <laughs> yeah. It drove me to my knees. And the fact is, 
I literally took every one of the fruits of the spirit at that point, And I called back to my family every night and I said, because it was a litmus test, right? Mm -hmm. So I just go through love is patient, right? Love is kind. Okay. Am I kind? So I asked Joshua, he goes, oh, you mean the time you took the Tesla and tried to run that guy down because you had a lot faster car because he cut you off? And I said, you remember that? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, you got out of the car and wanted to kill him. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my God, am I too many Christmas? Yeah. And then I'm really hitting conviction at this point in time. And then I go back and I'm like, God, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of a father am I? So when you ask how did it affect my kids, I think you're seeing it. Right. And so I'm like, oh, my God, love is patient. Love is kind. How many of these are there? (laughs) (laughs) And so so I'm literally going through every one of the fruits of the spirit. And I'm asking myself, what would happen if I had just 100 percent cup of that fruit of the spirit? So I started writing and I started going back to my family and asking them every single one of the fruits of the spirit. And every time I am convicted to the to the highest level, like I, I just can't believe this. And so I started going, I can't write a book and tell people what to do or how to do it if I don't do it myself. Mm-hmm. And so I went through the process of refining fire, of asking all of my friends and all of my family, am I generous? Am I kind? Am I patient? Am I loving? And the responses were not good. Mm-hmm. It's It's kind of like if you remember – uh nobel when he read about his obituary that they said he was dr death and that's what was the impetus for him to change and use his 250 million dollars to create the nobel peace prize Mm -hmm. because he he was so blown away by how people perceived him because he created dynamite and he was using it for something else but they used it for war and killing people and he did not want to be known for that and and so those are some of the things that we put in the books to give people examples of war and what people have been through. And so on a personal level, when I asked my kids each one of these things, I was devastated. I'll be honest with you. I was in tears and it was very hard. It was a my own come to Jesus meeting. And so I started working through them and, and writing on each one of them. And so I'll just make it real quick. The impact on my family I think by me being able to be honest and and forthcoming and just ask the real honest questions, mm-hmm. they were they they had to make a decision honestly. And my kids were quick to answer. My wife not so much, huh. be, because she's like David. I I've had to walk on eggshells for ever since you've come back. I never wanted that. Mm-mm. I never wanted that, and so. It impacted me in ways I never even imagined and my family. And I was like, you mean to tell me, David, you're willing to go halfway around the world to protect your family. And now you're the one that's bringing it home. This has got to, this has got to stop. And so that's how it impacted my family. And, and so I, in writing um, the book on, uh, it's called Up Armor. It's our newest series. I had to come to grips and reality that I was not the man I thought it was, hmm. but you know, you get there if, uh, if you're willing to do the work. And and so that's, that's how that happened. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. We're going to take a quick break here. Um, yeah. 
I just want to, again, say thank you for sharing all this stuff with us. This is exactly what uh, this this podcast is about. Um, when we take a short break, after we get back, I want to get into Project Healing Heroes and uh, the progress and the everything that you're doing to, to not only heal yourself, but heal the other veterans who are coming back with a lot of the, the same wounds that you're having. So give me one second. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This week's Veterans Resource, Nonprofit of the Week, is Project Healing Heroes. We empower combat veterans, service members, first responders, and their families to resolve trauma through awareness, resilience, and support. We are combat veterans who have expertise in treating post-traumatic stress, often referred to as PTSD. We utilize our military and crisis training to find solutions to resiliency challenges in individuals with all types of field-related trauma. Giving back, honoring losses, and providing for the greater good is integrated into every step of our ongoing care plan. Visit www.projecthealingheroes.org for more information. Welcome back, Dr. Tharp. Uh, again, thank you for sharing all these great stories with us. Um, again, this is exactly what all of this is about, and uh, it's about telling the real life stories. And uh, obviously, you've lived them. And uh, you know, you're oddly enough, right? You're the you're the doctor. You're the guy that's supposed to be out there fixing everybody <laughs> else, and you're the one that's that's broken. And so, um, you shared yep. some amazing stories with us. But let's talk now about the uh, the next phase in your life, which is Project Healing Heroes that you started back in 2016. Sure. And and let's talk about uh, exactly <laughs> what it is that uh, that Project Healing Heroes is about, and and the treatment yep. modalities, and then yep. how how can veterans get in touch with you and go through it? Uh, you bet. So, Jay, let me illustrate it uh, this way. If you've ever been to a magnificent church that has had the murals where it's stained glass, where it's broken into pieces, and they put it together with resin, and it makes an incredible story and beautiful pictures, they have them in Germany all over the place. It's just incredible and beautiful. In our lives, when we're broken, sometimes we're shattered. I'll be honest with you. But you know what? The most beautiful pictures are created by the most smallest pieces of charred glass. And when God puts them in the right pieces and places with the resin, you can make you can make the most beautiful pictures in the world and tell a story that you could have never told otherwise. That's kind of the way I look at Project Healing Heroes. Most of us are combat veterans that um, are professionals that have been through the crucible of war. Not all of them are probably as emotional as I am, but the fact is, is that we've been there and we've walked in those boots. And that was the impetus for many of the folks that join us and be a part of our organization. And it's from that brokenness that we become stronger. And um, and we've worked through a lot of these issues. And the cool thing is, is that we can give people a, a hope and a future because we've been there. And we've been through the other, and we've been through the other side. Uh, one of our board members was um, suicidal and took a gun and was gonna was gonna kill himself. And it wasn't until he saw the ring on his finger that it it glistened, and he felt like God did not want him to kill himself. We've had other people that have just been through. You can't even imagine different things and experiences. But I think you're gaining it as you listen to more and more veteran stories. Um, and so what happened is is that we made a willful decision that there's no way we could ever treat all of the people that need this help. Um, There's just too many. Mm -hmm. And so what we decided to do 
was to create the resources to make them available for free uh, for anybody who wants them and needs them. We do sell them on Amazon, and the reason is because it gives us a wider audience and people can get access to them faster. But at the same time, I have books and books and books that I'm uh, that I have out in my garage, and we're willing to give those to anybody who asks. So if they want them, all they have to do is at the end of this broadcast, we'll give them the information, and and they can they can request those, and and they're going to be on their way to you immediately. So what we decided to do is to create resources. Now, I will tell you, um, the most powerful one that we've come up with is has been in the making for four and a half years. It's called UpArmor. And the reason why it's called UpArmor is because we UpArmored our Humvees and other um, um, uh, equipment because our, the IEDs were just destroying our guys, killing us at gals, and just it was devastating. And I saw way too much of the devastation of war and, and what that did to people. And so we, we decided um, four and a half years ago to create a resource called UpArmor. It is um, peer-led. It is in small groups. We have um, a shepherd and a facilitator. We don't call them necessarily leaders because we're all part of this. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for small groups is that we found that people need to have trust and confidence in the people that are in the group. You can't have people keep going in and out of groups. Um, you've got to have people who you trust. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that can only be built over time. There are people who do 8 to 12 week groups. Um, we respect that. But honestly, what I found as a pastor is that it's in these small groups where people can build relationships and trust and confidence in each other. And it's only then when you can be really, truly authentic. And so what we did is we wanted something that was peer-led. We wanted something that was research-based, but we also wanted faith to be a part of this as well. We had created enough resources that if people want to get those, they're free to them uh, to get them. But we wanted to create the most comprehensive faith-based trauma treatment program that included everything you could possibly imagine, including the research that we do at Auburn University, including um, having the small groups so that people have confidence and trust, and then led by experts who've been there and done that. And that's what we did. And so we have now, we, it's a series of six books because you want to break them down into smaller chunks because you can't, you know, do it that, you know, we, we also found that in research, if you will do something, I know some people will say 28 days or 30 days to change a behavior. The truth is in trauma treatment, it takes a lot longer mm-hmm. for people to work through the invisible wounds of war. So we don't do it for eight weeks. We don't do it for 12 weeks. We do it for 50 weeks out of the year. We take Christmas and New Year's off, but we still do things, or I mean Thanksgiving, but we still make ourselves available to people. So what we're doing is we have now launched UpArmor, which is a 50-module, 50-week, peer-led, subject matter expert and research-focused trauma treatment program that is about as comprehensive as we could possibly make it. But it it, 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 I almost said it, but it gets better for 1995. <laughs> <laughs> so, but w- what we've also done is we've made it personalized. So we ask people to give us their name when they sign up and we can put them in groups. And then we literally put their, their names in the book huh. so that they can actually have their own personalized copy uh, of their trauma treatment program, and it's run by experts, people who know what they're doing, and it's also run by peers uh, as well. 
And so we have put this together as a, as a program to help people that want a faith-based approach to, um, to trauma treatment. And it's been incredibly successful to date. Uh, we did our beta test down in San Antonio, Texas. The groups are only supposed to be eight to 10 because we want to keep them small. Um, I, w- I hadn't even finished the books yet. And I had a guy ask me because uh, he was a first responder. And he said, David, I need these books now. We have had three police officers kill themselves hmm. on the San Antonio Police Department. And I can't wait. Can I please have permission to use your books? And I said, of course. But understand, we're not done. And he goes, I don't care. You know, and, and, and I said, of course, of course you can. And so he started the, the beta test. It is now up to 43 people. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, it's only supposed to be eight to 10. He goes, well, what do you want me to do? Turn them away? Yeah, right. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want you to do that either. And he goes, well, then um, maybe it's different than what God, than what you thought God was going to do with it. But I'm telling you, this thing is doing incredible work in people's lives and people are telling others about them and they're coming. That's and awesome. so uh, we were so encouraged by that. Um, that we launched the national initiative uh, here in Las Vegas uh, on Veterans Day weekend. And so um, we are still putting together the last book uh, of the program, but we have the first five books done. And so if people are interested and they want to get a part, uh, be a part of Up Armor, uh, we can make that happen. Perfect. So they can obviously go to projecthealingheroes.org um, or they can obviously mm-hmm. come through operationhealingheroes.org. We have a, uh, mm-hmm. we've got your website listed through ours also as under our resource guide. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's one of those things. And this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a, a program that it's kind of self-based, meaning you, you do it as, you know, as much or as little as you want. You're having a tough day, you're struggling. Maybe it's a day that you yep. want to read if it's a, you know, or yes. vice versa, right? Exactly. Look, one of the things that I'm totally convinced of, Jay, is this. I may have the degrees, but the people who've been on the front lines, they're the experts. Mm -hmm. They know the truth. They know what they've been through. Now, they may need some help, just like I did, to get through it, but we've got people who've been through it and been on, on the other side, and they can look and see that people have been successful and that can do this. And that we're going to be alongside them and help them. Uh, the, the truth is you have to – so the very first book that we created is called Boot Camp. So there's a surprise, right, because of the military and everything else you ever go through and any kind of training in the government, right? You go through this boot camp period, and it's called Naked Warriors where we get really to the point we don't get naked. What we do is we, we tell people, like, you got to get rid of this facade. you got to get rid of this fake um, – the, 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 this this – uh, what do you call it? Um, when you put on a mask. Yeah. Yeah. You, that mask that you're trying to show that you've got it all together. Look, we, we don't look. If I'm willing to tell you that I don't have it all together and that God took me and used me in, in a way that helped me to, to get to where I am today. There, there's no stigma shouldn't even be an issue at this point in time. We all are broken. We are all mm-hmm. wounded warriors that are doing the best to become healing heroes. Like that's the point. We got to get to the healing point. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that. That's the purpose. That's what we need. We don't. Th- there are people who walk around that say, um, "Don't talk to me. I have PTSD." That, that doesn't help, no. right? That's not help. One of the number one things, Jay, that we have found is is that if you can destroy isolation, mm-hmm. 
and instead create relationships, that will help tremendously in helping people to have confidence that they can get to a better place. And that's why we do things in the small groups. And we do everything we can to stop the isolation. Because one of the first things that people do when they get suicidal is they push everybody away. Mm -hmm. So why in the world would we wait and create a crisis hotline as the last line of defense? Start it early on and build the tribe, which is what we created, like what we had in the military, and build those relationships so you never get to that point. Right? Right? That's the whole point. That's why you do what you do. That's why we do what we do so that we can actually have people have confidence because instead of picking up the phone, which I'm not against that at all, we need a lifeline, sure. but you call somebody you don't even know and you say, I'm feeling suicidal. Okay. Versus, hey, Bob, I'm not doing well today. I need I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me. I want mm -hmm. you, would you please come over to my house? Can I come there? Can we go golf? Can we do something together? Can we go fishing? Yes. Can we make a difference? Right. And then you build that relationship and then they're like, I I'm really, I'm not doing well. I'm having a hard time. Okay. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Well, I don't really want to tell you. Look, brother, I care about you or sister. We got to break these boundaries. We got to stop. Mm -hmm. Quit trying to put on the mask. Let's be honest. Let's be vulnerable. Tell me what's going on so that I can help you because I'm not going anywhere. Yep. And when you do that, when you do that kind of stuff, you get serious with people. That's when change happens. Yeah. And and is that fair to say that that's part of your Thursday night calls? Uh, I think it's called like Make the Connection. Yeah. It is. MakeTheConnection.org. Uh, look. You want to you want to see a bunch of people that get together to have a great time. Uh, they're kind of like you can't believe that they do some of the stuff they do. And we do it. We literally have the best time ever. Uh, yeah. Just all you have to do is log on and you don't have to tell us your name. It's not therapy. I can guarantee you that mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not. It's you don't have to tell us your name. You don't have to tell us anything. We do an icebreaker sometimes that just tells, you know, say, hey, what's your first name and where are you calling in from? Mm -hmm. uh, just so that we can get an idea where people are and stuff. And it's kind of fun uh, actually to hear where people are calling from. But it's it's just a, a wonderful place for people to be able to come that's safe and, and secure and, and they can just be themselves. And, and honestly, if you're coming to look for therapy, don't look there because uh, I'm not doing it. Um, what I'm doing is making sure that people have somebody that they can hang out with and we're having a good time. We do it on a Zoom call uh, right now, but we're actually creating our own platform um, and we're getting, getting ready to launch that as well. And the, the reason is because we want complete and total security. We don't want anybody having access to anything that people are saying. Um, that's our number one thing that we make sure. Uh, nothing gets shared outside of the group period unconditional um that's a rule that's just the way it is and if you can't re if you can't do that then you don't belong in our groups that's all there is to it i'll just tell you straight up um the other thing we tell people is um you know there's hope right uh -huh. there's a future and a hope that you can actually have to get better but they have to see it in real life uh -huh. that's what we're there for we want to come alongside people and help them to have confidence that things can get better and that's what we do at Project Healing Heroes. Perfect. Well, I know we've shared a lot of information. Uh, the podcast now has been an hour and 40-something minutes, but uh, it's, it's important <laughs> that we we share all of this, right? I mean, and that's the thing about these podcasts. I know they're long, but it, it makes absolute perfect sense in my mind to be able to do this. Um, 
Doc, what would you tell any veteran, any family member right now that's uh, that's sitting here listening to this show uh, who may be struggling with PTS? Maybe they haven't admitted it. Uh, maybe they have admitted mm-hmm. it. Maybe they don't know where to go to get the uh, the help. Um, what would yep. you say to those individuals? Go to Jake uh, Garsecki and go, <laughs> and go fishing. <laughs> there you go. No, I love it. Some, sometimes, you know, honestly, God, sometimes that's exactly what it, yes. it, it takes, right? Yep. There is nothing wrong with that. Why? Because you're destroying isolation. Uh-huh. You're destroying it. You're saying, I'm not going to let it win today. Yeah. Uh, there, there, that's basically saying, I want to go and do something fun and enjoyable. I don't have to be sitting here listening to Dr. Tharp tell me about all this psychological stuff. What I need is I need some buddies to go hang out with. I want to recreate the tribe and I want to feel like I can reconnect with people. That's what we do. That's what you do, Jay, when you're reaching out to people and making a difference. And that honest to God is what we do at Project Healing Heroes. I am one man. I cannot fix this problem, nor do I have any desire to. Mm-hmm. I did feel overwhelmed when God gave me the challenge to create this. And I was like, God, I can't do this. And he said, oh, funny, I never asked you to. All I'm asking you to do is be faithful with what I've given you. Mm-hmm. And right now, this is what I've given you to do. I want you to make sure that people know that they can come, that there's a place of hope. There's a place of encouragement to show people it can be done and be there for when people need it. Now, David, you can't do that for everybody. So that's why we have to put them in small groups and we have to build trust and confidence. And when people can do that and they start finding out that their buddies out there and people they can hang with and just be themselves and then they can do fun stuff like doing the fishing with a vet mm-hmm. or they can do equine therapy. Not everything has to be in a book. I mean, we're, we're, we are, we have to include every possible resource because there's so many different people and the way they're uniquely created. Who in the world would seem to think that everything is um, going to be going to be fixed with a hammer? Right. That, of course, if it's a nail, sure. Well, it is now. No, no, no. That's a screw. And not now. It's not. You know. You're like, you know. And, and so when we keep doing one thing, I will say to you is this. One of the things that we're doing with UpArmor is that we're getting the feedback from the people who are actually using it, and we're changing it on a consistent basis. One of the downfalls of trauma treatment is that when a psychologist, typically a PhD, comes up with this trauma treatment, you can't change it. You can't deviate from it because it'll mess up what they created. We're the exact opposite. We're not the experts. You are. Uh You tell us what's working and what's not. And then when we get something wrong, we fix it. And guess what that just did? It made it better. And so we're constantly making things better based on the feedback that the real experts are giving us. And instead of it being, you know, static, it's dynamic. Uh And that's one of the reasons why we think that Project Healing Heroes is going to make a difference in the suicide problem is because we're getting people together. They're being genuine. They're being real. And they're being vulnerable. And that they have somebody that they can trust. And then there's also an echelon of care that if it needs a higher echelon care of professionalism, we we have that capability as well. Uh So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where at least you're admitting to the fact that, hey, we don't have all the answers. It's a work in progress, and we're going to continue yep. to learn because no two people are the same. No two traumas are the same. 
and uh, no yep. two people feel uh, trauma the same or deal with trauma the same, right? And so it's it's super important that uh, you guys have realized that and and you say, hey, it's always a it's always a work in progress. There's no there's no end to this. After six books and up armor, um, who knows? Maybe there's going to be a seventh book, right? I mean, I'm not trying to put work on your plate, but I'm just saying that once you learn more, right, and once you understand yeah. things a little right. bit better, never say never. That's all I'm really saying. So um, you, again, you started out the bright. Jay, real quickly, you started out the broadcast with bringing up the issue that people have childhood trauma, right? Yep. And when you join the military, that doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the fact is, is that sometimes people have compounding trauma, right? Yep. It, it's they, they have these terms called complex trauma. I call it compound trauma because you're compounding what you've experienced onto other things that just keeps making it worse and worse and worse. And so the fact is, is that by doing things like what you're doing in your ministry uh, with fishing is just one piece of the puzzle for somebody who says, I don't want to go talk to some psychologist. I just want to get the heck away from this. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just go have fun and not think about this for a while? And you're like, of course, just come join us. And so that is an avenue that they can start building trust. And they're like, why, why would you, Jay, why would you do this for me? Because I care. Mm-hmm. I want to make a difference. I want to do something that's going to make a, a difference in your life and be meaningful. Yeah, but why would you do that? Because I've seen the pain. I've seen the hurt. And I know that we can do something with what God's given me to do to make a difference. And then they're so like, wow, mm-hmm. okay. And then people look at other options. And then that's when maybe they get the help that they need. But because people are so complex, as you had indicated, We've got to meet them where they are. We can't keep thinking, you've got to come and do our program because this is the way we created it because we're the experts and we tell you that. Uh, that doesn't work for me. Amen to that. I, um, I I have to say that the reason that you know we started Take About Fishing back in 2011, 2012, whenever it was, is that uh, two things. Uh, one, like you just said, isolation, right? We've got to get them out of the basements, mm-hmm. out of the isolation, and we've got to get them into the outdoors. Whether they're avid fishermen or they're someone who's never held a fishing pole in their life, we wanted to get them out, out into the outdoors because God gave us a, a, an amazing world out there to experience and natural healing powers and things like that. Um, and in addition to that, we wanted to put them around other veterans because, again, you you talk about the tribe and, and uh, nobody, including myself, understands veterans and what they've been through uh, better than other veterans who have been there, done that, and walked a day in those shoes. And so we wanted to be able to provide uh, a safe place that they could go out there, experience what God has given us, and then also um, be around other veterans, because that's the most important thing is the camaraderie, uh, being able to not necessarily share war stories by any means, just being able to be around someone who you trust and you know has walked a day in your shoes and uh, and can relate, relate to you. So um, again, that's that's exactly why we started Take Event Fishing. I'm sure it's many of the reasons why you started Project Healing Heroes was again to just get that pe- those individuals conditioned into a sense where they could go out and actually explore and, and partake in a Take Event Fishing event. Well, let me just applaud you, and I, and I know you don't take probably <laughs> compliments well <laughs> because well. you just want to you know <laughs> you want to hide behind the, you know that don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But I'm just going to tell you uh, without men and women like you, Jay, um, it, it, it just isn't going to happen. The government doesn't do this. Uh, you, you can't have a faith-based program mm-hmm. sponsored by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen. So we did it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and if other people have a different faith, 
We applaud that too. Absolutely. We say, come join us. Br bring your faith tradition and we'll use our material and you use your examples. And we, we, we do that. And, and I don't know why it blows people away. They're like, well, you're, you're going to be exclusive. No, 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 no. Exactly opposite. Yep. You bring us what you to the table and we will integrate it and we will make it happen. Absolutely. And you will have your name and you will have your name on it. We'll publish it with your name on it because we want everybody to be reached. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what, even if you don't have a faith tradition and you know, Jay, as well as I do, there are a lot of people who have issues with God, mm -hmm. big time issues with God. I always find it interesting. They're mad at God. Well, I don't believe in God. Okay. Well, which one is it? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I just, I, I'm mad at somebody who I don't believe in. Okay, great. I'm just making sure I understand this logically because you know, that's what I am. I'm a psychologist. I have to think this through, you know, and, and the truth is what it is. People are hurt. They're just genuinely, they've been to hell and back. So what you do, my friend, is making a huge impact and a difference. And I don't want people to misunderstand or miss what it is that you're doing that's making a difference, my friend, because I'm telling you, those are the kinds of things that can make or break a person and you never know what they're going through. And, and, I have heard enough stories that what you shared with me about what people have been through and they start opening up when the peace and the calm is around and they've got a, a rod in their hand and they're just having fun. Yeah. No, amen to that. So thank you. Thank you. I, thank you for what you're doing. Me. It really does to, to have a friend like you and a resource like you is, is absolutely amazing. And, and that being said, um, any final words that you'd like to, to, share upon the the view the uh, listeners you know there is one thing I, I i typically say no but i am gonna say something jay you can't do this ministry without resources it's just not possible mm -hmm. so if there's anybody out there that um wants to make a difference in this world and you have the means by all means step up because neither your organization or mine are uh, are are wealthy it's the exact total opposite <laughs> It's the exact total opposite. I think in our uh, since inception, the most we've ever had in our bank account is uh, sixty thousand mm -hmm. uh, dollars. That's it. And we we have written nine books now, and we have done so much ministry. And um, and I can imagine that you have um, done something very similar and just had to struggle. So um, what I'm asking people is not to support Project Healing Heroes. I'm asking you to support Jay and what he's doing. And if you have the means. Trust me, if you will do whatever it is that you can do, God only knows who you're going to be able to affect. And so I, I want to make sure that you have the resources you need to keep going because you are doing good work. Well, thank you for that. I, I certainly appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, I always say money is the root of all evil, right? But unfortunately, it's the necessary <laughs> evil as it relates to our organizations. We are both nonprofit organizations. And like you said, we, we kick, fight, scratch, uh, tooth and nail every day of the week. Uh, every day is fundraising day as far as I'm concerned. And, and um, but yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where um, you and I have both you know, <laughs> taking the leap of faith where we didn't have necessarily the funds or the, the money behind it to do something, uh, you know, what our vision entailed, but uh, we did it anyway. Yep. And, and miraculously, God works in great ways. And he was able to uh, provide that, whether it's financial means or whether it was putting individuals into our lives at the right time. Um, I can go on forever as far as the, the stories. But that being said, uh, we've always come up with uh, um, an outcome. And uh, that outcome usually yeah. is, is the right outcome. So again, thank you very much for that because it really does mean a lot to me.
Um, thank you, you for bet. being part of this uh, entire podcast because it's uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about the the work that you've done, the work that we continue to try to do. And uh, again, I, I always say, hey, if we can save one life, we've we've made a difference, right? And uh, that's amen. That's where I'm at. So. Thank you very much, Dr. Tharp. Um, I always like to close the show with talking about, you know, PTS. It it is a true silent killer, um, but there are ways of coping. There are ways of healing. Um, If you'd like more information on Operation Healing Heroes or uh, Project Healing Heroes, you can visit uh, projecthealingheroes.org or operationhealingheroes.org. Until next week when we feature another veteran, I just want to leave you with another... uh, Some more information regarding Project Healing Heroes from our Nonprofit of the Week. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. This week's Veterans Resource, Nonprofit of the Week, is Project Healing Heroes. We empower combat veterans, service members, first responders, and their families to resolve trauma through awareness, resilience, and support. We are combat veterans who have expertise in treating post-traumatic stress, often referred to as PTSD. We utilize our military and crisis training to find solutions to resiliency challenges in individuals with all types of field-related trauma. Giving back, honoring losses, and providing for the greater good is integrated into every step of our ongoing care plan. Visit www.projecthealingheroes.org for more information.